0: Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists share their most recent work, or, as in this week's episode, share their entire life story. It was my pleasure this week to speak with Elliot Aronson, Professor Emeritus at UC Santa Cruz. Elliot is one of the 100 most influential psychologists of the 20th century. He is known for his work on cognitive dissonance, where people do crazy things, but not for crazy reasons, as he puts it, and the jigsaw classroom intended to establish cooperation in competitive environments. He is the only person ever to receive all major awards from the American Psychological Association for writing, research, and teaching. In this chat, we go into a deep dive into the history of psychology and Elliot's role in it. What was it like working with the influential psychologists Abraham Maslow and Leon Festinger? Why did these two people dislike each other so much, as it turns out? How did racial segregation motivate Elliot's research? How can research ever address big societal problems? Why are the 2010s the decade of dissonance? Hope you enjoyed this conversation. This week on the Stanford Psychology Podcast, I am very honored to be chatting with Elliot Aronson about your life into psychology, studying cognitive dissonance and the jigsaw classroom cooperation at the societal level, at the classroom level. So many things we could be talking about. But first of all, I want to thank you for your time and ask you, how are you doing? in the midst of COVID and the country falling apart, as some people might say, how are
1: you doing? Look, I'm almost 91 years old. And when you're almost 91 years old, you can step back. And in spite of a lot of people yelling that the country is falling apart, we've been through some rough times before. Obviously, none as quite as rough as this one with the combination of Donald Trump and COVID. It makes things a little bit difficult. but we were through the Great Depression that took place in the 30s. I was born in 1932 and my father was hit hard by the Great Depression in the sense that he had a little store that sold socks and underwear and he lost it in the Depression. And so we, when I was born, and the first thing I would remember when I was four, five, six years old was that we were extremely poor, that we didn't have enough to eat that we didn't have enough heat in the house. Uh, it was really a very rough time. And then we were we went through World War II and the Holocaust. And then the post war period when when the Soviet Union got the got nuclear weapons and we were forever worried that there would be a nuclear attack and school children were learning to duck and cover under their deaths, as if that would help them in a nuclear holocaust. And so We've been through a lot in this country, and we're through it in a rough period right now. But I think, I'm hoping that we'll come out of it. So that's how I'm doing. I'm, I take a long view and a rather philosophical view, as is the privilege of old people who have been through a lot.
0: Wow. Let's take a long view and go back in history go back to those early years before you knew you wanted to be a psychologist. When did you first have an idea of psychology, people? This might be something I want to study. I am interested in
1: a very long view is that I started to think like a social psychologist when I was nine years old. I remember that vividly because one of my most vivid childhood memories was the following thing, I, as I said, Earlier, I grew up in the Great Depression, and my father was unemployed. We were very poor, and we lived in a a blue-collar town just a little bit northeast of Boston, Massachusetts. And we lived in a neighborhood that was virulently anti-Semitic, and our family was Jewish, is Jewish, and my parents were quite orthodox, and would send me to Hebrew school, which, most Jews went to to learn Hebrew and to learn something about our history, the history of the Jewish people. And in order to go to Hebrew school, the Hebrew school started, it was four days a week starting at four o'clock in the afternoon and going through until about 6.30 or 7. And I remember I used, walking home from Hebrew school, I was frequently waylaid by anti-Semitic teenagers Little groups of them, four or five at a time, who would often shout anti Semitic insults at me. Uh, occasionally they'd push me around a little. And every once in a while, I really got beaten up. And after one of these things, when I got beaten up, I remember sitting on a curbstone, nursing a bloody nose and a split lip. And I began to wonder why these kids hated Jews so much. Remember, I'm nine years old, and I'm thinking, were they born hating Jews? Or did somebody teach them to hate Jews? And wondering why they hated me so much when they didn't even know me. And wondering if they got to know me better. And came to the realization that I was a rather sweet and generous and decent kid. Would they, would they like me more? And then wondering, gee, and if they like me more, might that not mean that they might hate other Jews a little bit less than they now do? Now, that's why I was nine years old. Ten years later, I was in college at Brandeis University. The only reason I went to Brandeis University was it was the only college that offered me a full tuition scholarship, and I wouldn't have been able to afford to go to college without a full tuition scholarship. But they gave me full tuition. They also gave me a job that helped me pay for room and board during the year. It was a wonderful thing. I had declared myself as an economics major. The reason I was majoring in economics was because of my father. My father went through the Great Depression. I used to see him crying at the kitchen table because he couldn't, because he wasn't able to support his family. And then he died. He died when I was a junior in high school, in my third year in high school. And, and so when I had to declare a major in my sophomore year, I figured I'd major in economics because I wanted to learn something practical, Because At that point, I thought the main reason you go to college was to increase your income. And I figured I'd major in something that was practical rather than things that I liked. At the time, I was really loving philosophy and literature and stuff like that. But those seemed to be majors for people who didn't have to worry about earning a living. And so I'm majoring in economics. and not really liking it very much. I was having a cup of coffee with a young woman very attractive young woman, someone I was trying to impress. And suddenly she said, oh my God, I'm late for class. And she got up to go to class. And I figured I'd go along with her and maybe we could hold hands in the back of the room. She said it was a lecture course in introductory psychology. And I got in there and we sat in the back of the room and we're holding hands. And the teacher was some guy named Abraham Maslow. Now, I never heard of that name before. He had recently joined the faculty at Brandeis. I never heard of him. I didn't know if he was Abraham Maslow, the founding father of humanistic psychology. I just thought he was another professor, just another professor. And he started the lecture, and what he was talking about in this introductory psychology class was the psychology of prejudice. And as I'm sitting there in the back of the room holding hands with this young woman, Suddenly, he started to raise the very questions that I had raised 10 years earlier when I was nine years old sitting on that curve. And I thought, oh, my God, there's a whole science devoted to raising and trying to answer questions like that. I immediately, I dropped the girl's hand and started <laughs> to take notes. And I lost the girl but I gained a vocation and a passion for this topic because the very next day I switched my major from economic to psychology. I worked closely with Maslow. I became one of his favorite students and a protege of his learned an awful lot from him. He encouraged me to go on to graduate school and here I am. So it was a very fortuitous event Otherwise, I might have become a second-rate economist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and we should clarify for our listeners, even though Abraham Maslow made you lose the girl in the lecture, my understanding is that he, in a sense, still helped you fall in love with a fellow research assistant in the lab. Yeah. So he made up for yeah. it.
1: That was a, an incredible gift. He gave me a lot of gifts, most of them intellectual, but... He, my wife, were now married for sixty-eight years. Huh. Was another was a in our senior year. He, I knew of her. She was a lovely woman, very smart. But we traveled in different social circles. She traveled with the intellectual. And I traveled with the dummies. could fellow students that I really liked, but they weren't. The conversations were anything but intellectual. But though hiring us both as his research assistants in a senior year, invited us to dinner at his home together. And I had the feeling, strong feeling, that he was being a matchmaker and thought that Vera and I would make a very nice couple. And we did make a very nice couple. And six months after we graduated from college, we got married. And as I say, we've been married for 68 years. And Oh. It's been a wonderful marriage. So I it really, owe a great deal.
0: It really brings to life a character like Abraham Maslow, who many of us will only ever read about in our textbooks. Another such character is Leon Festinger, yeah. who was advising you in graduate school here at Stanford. And when I read your reports of what he was like as an advisor, I believe you also really made him come to life. (laughs) What was Leon Festinger like?
1: First of all, let me back up a second. I want to talk about how lucky I've been throughout my life. And one of the great pieces of good luck was finding Maslow, wandering into that classroom and deciding to become a psychologist because of that one lecture. And and I didn't go to Brandeis to work with Maslow. I went to Brandeis because it was the only place that offered me a scholarship. I went to Stanford because a couple of guys I met had been to Stanford and they were very happy there in the psychology department. But I didn't go there to work with Leon Festinger. As a matter of fact, Festinger and I arrived at Stanford in the psychology department the same year. Me as a rather insecure first year graduate student and Festinger, while still rather young in his late thirties. He wasn't yet 40 years old, was a superstar in social psychology and also had a reputation. He had a reputation for being a genius and also had a reputation for being a very difficult person, very impatient with students, very demanding and angry and sarcastic and difficult in a lot of ways. And he had that reputation that came with him from his previous place, but he brought a couple of graduate students with him who were very frightened of him. So I was pretty insecure, and I decided I was going to keep far away from that guy. But as luck would have it, he was giving a seminar in the spring of my first year, and I got by one of my fellow graduate students into taking it because he asked me if I wasn't taking it because I was afraid of him. <laughs> and because I was afraid of him, I didn't want to admit it. So I took the seminar. And it was a seminar in which he was just developing the theory of cognitive dissonance. And in that seminar, I learned that everything I heard about Festinger was absolutely true. He was a genius, he was very demanding, and he was scary. Angry, difficult, sarcastic, insulting, a very difficult person to work with, but very smart. And my favorite story about Festinger is, oh, about halfway into the course, maybe five weeks into the course, he assigned a term paper. And I was loving the course, by the way. He was hard on people. If you didn't come in fully prepared, And really having thought through all of the readings he assigned, and he assigned a lot of reading, if you didn't, if you really weren't up on it, he would be devastating. So I found him very difficult, but ingenious. And I thought the theory of cognitive dissonance was extremely exciting. And exciting because there were all kinds of ideas that came into my head for research to help demonstrate how we're and we're not the theory of cognitive dissonance applied. It was just a marvelous seminar. Anyway, he assigned this term paper and I wrote the paper. I'd written a lot of term papers and handed it in and a few days later I'm walking past Bestinger's office on I was a teaching assistant in introductory psychology and my I had an office, a large office with a lot of de- desks in it. Down the hall from Festinger's office. I'm walking past his office on the way to my office, and he yelled, Hey, Harrison, come in here. And I came in and he picked up my paper from a stack that was on his desk. And I have to demonstrate this. He held it up by the corner like this and said, and held it at arm's length turned his head away from it and said, I believe this is yours. (laughs) And that was a devastating way to receive my paperback, but (laughs) I I tried to pop it out, so I said, it looked like you didn't like it very much. And he gave me a look, an incredible look, which is, I can't really imitate it, but it's it's a combination of... Contempt and pity. Oh, the contempt was because I was wasting his time. And for him, his time was absolutely the most precious thing in the world. And the, and he had no patience with people wasting his time. The pity was like he felt sorry for me that I had been born brain damaged or something. <laughs> anyway, he, me, he said, that's right. I didn't like it very much. So I took the paper back into my office, sat down on my desk, and when I opened it, there wasn't a single mark on it. And I thought, what, what am I gonna do with this? How so I went back into his office, gathering all my courage, and I said, Excuse me, Professor Festinger, but you didn't write anything on the margin in the margins or anything. How am I supposed to know what I did wrong? Then he gave me that look again, and he said, what? You don't have enough respect for your own ideas to follow them through to their logical conclusion, and you expect me to do that? This is graduate school, Sonny, not kindergarten. oh I turned around, and I walked back the 27 miles to my office, and then I... Reread the paper and i tried to read it through festinger's eyes and it was a lousy piece of work incomplete as he said i didn't follow through on a lot of the ideas i presented so this was a choice point in my life an incredibly important choice point i asked myself do I really want to work with this son of a bitch? Is this somebody I really want to get close to? And I thought, I could quit this seminar. And if I stay with this guy and he really is angry at me, I might flunk out of graduate school. At that point, we had, we had a baby, a two-year-old. And Dora was about to give birth to a second child. And if I flunked out of graduate school, I don't know what we would have done. And so my first thought was, maybe I'll work with Al Bandura or I don't know, Bob Sears, or Jack Hillgard. There are a lot of good people around to work with. After all, it was Stanford. Even in those days, there were some great people to work with. I said, do I really want to work with this son of a bitch? And my answer was, yes, I do. He is a son of a bitch, but he is really smart. And this theory is really exciting. I want to work on that. So I went back home, and for the next three days, and it really seemed like almost 72 consecutive hours, I got very little sleep. I reworked that paper and reworked that paper and reworked that paper until I made it as good as it could possibly be, in my eyes anyway. Carried it back into Festinger's office. Put it, Sitting at his desk, reading something. Put it in front of him, and I said, maybe you'll like this version better. <clears throat> to his great credit, he must have dropped everything he was doing, because 20 minutes later, he came into the room where my desk was. Put the paper in front of me. Sat down on the corner of my desk put his hand on my shoulder and said, now this is worth criticizing. This is worth criticizing, which is a very funny statement. But what he was saying at that moment is, if you meet me halfway and you give me your best shot in everything you do, I will work with you, and I will criticize you, and I will help you learn how to do it even better, which is a huge gift. At that moment, we became teacher and student. Within a year, he began to treat me like a colleague and used me to help work with some of the younger students that were coming in. And within three years, we were close friends. It was an amazing transition, and it changed my life. It helped me really become a sharp researcher and helped me get to the point where I could even
0: criticize Festinger's work, which was fun. And of course, your work on cognitive dissonance has really taken off. It's one of those psychological phenomena that everyone has heard about that is everywhere. And so, because everyone has their own definition and application and misapplication, as these things grow and there's concept creep and people apply it in all kinds of the wrong settings. As someone who originally worked on this and has done a lot of the groundwork, how do you define it and then more critically, What are some of the misapplications of cognitive dissonance that you have seen where people just don't understand what they are talking about?
1: It's it's, People often confuse it with conflict or whatever, but it's really a cognitive, it's a wonderful combination of cognition and motivation. And the way it works, the simple definition that Festinger gave in his 57 book, it called A Theory of Cognitive Dissonance. Is when a person holds two cognition, ideas, cognitive events, things, thoughts, ideas, where the one suggests the opposite of the other. He experiences cognitive dissonance, which is a drive, a negative drive state like extreme thirst or extreme hunger, except to take place up here in the mind. And, and he has to strive. To reduce that business, the same as you strive to reduce hunger or thirst, and in this case, either by changing one or both cognitions to bring them closer together. best example of it that I can give is from the very first experiment I ever did on cognitive business, which was published in 1959, and it demonstrated that if people go through hell and high water, in order to get into a particular group, they will like that group better than if they got into the group by going through a very mild initiation. You go through a severe initiation where you go through a lot of embarrassment or pain to become a member. All Anything negative about that group, if the group is boring, if it's a discussion group and it goes on too long and people talk too much and some people don't know what the hell they're talking about, Anything that's negative about the group will arouse dissonance because the dissonance is, I went through all of that crap in order to get into this group. Therefore, people will begin to find things about the group that are attractive. And they will like the group better in the long run or in the short run than people who got in without going through the initiation. And that's why... The experiment is really important because you can't just take people who are already in the group because they may have joined the group knowing it was it. you had to go through a severe initiation in advance, and therefore they may have been more highly motivated. So you can't let people select themselves into the group. So you take a random sample of people, as I did with my fellow graduate student Judson Mills, and you randomly assign them either to a Severe initiation condition, a mild initiation condition, or a no initiation condition. And then they get into a group, and they all listen to the same tape recording of a discussion being held by that group, believing it's the group they had just joined. And then they're asked to evaluate it. And those who went through the severe initiation like the group, a lot better than those who went in the other two conditions. So it was a very clear and one of the earliest demonstrations of the power of cognitive dissonance theory. Power in the sense that after they had listened to that group discussion, if I had just given, the let's take the control condition, where they didn't go through any kind of initiation in order to get into it, If if they had listened to that discussion group and then I tried to convince them that it was really an interesting discussion, I couldn't have succeeded. They would have looked at me as if I was crazy. What's powerful about cognitive dissonance theory is you set up a situation in which people are motivated to convince themselves that it was an interesting group. And that makes all the difference in the world. Not only do they convince themselves that it was interesting, but they can, they stay convinced months after the whole thing is over. Very powerful. Now, that was the initial statement of cognitive business theory. A few years later, I modified the theory a little bit, what I thought was a small thing. I think what is... The point... The statement I made was this. The theory makes its best and clearest prediction, its strongest, its most powerful, when one of those two cognitions is a person's self-concept. That <laughs> is to say, when he says, So, hang on just a second. My dog needs to be let off. <laughs> of course Be right. Okay, go oh. on. The dog always comes first. Okay. When one of those cognitions is about who I think I am. So, for example, in this initiation experiment, I would restate it. Instead of, I went a boring discussion, it's cognition one. I, no, I went through a severe initiation, cognition one is dissonant with the group I did it for turns out to be lousy and then I convince myself actually it's not at all that lousy. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. As a matter of fact, some of those people really had some good ideas and after five or ten minutes, I'm convincing myself in fact they're really, quite a good group, okay? That's the Prestinger's prediction. And it's I would say in this instance, what's really at stake is the self. Cognition, I am a smart person very smart, very discerning, very critical, and I went through a severe initiation in order to get into a boring group, that's really powerful, okay? So it's the same event, but when we look at any event and we think the self is involved, it's much more powerful than if the self isn't involved if somebody accuses a person of being a thief and it's a person I like I might experience some dissonance if someone is like a bad politician and has done some dishonest thing I might experience dissonance if I like that person and he's done some maybe has done some dishonest thing but it would be much more dissonant if I was being accused of having done some dishonest thing but that goes against my cognition that I'm a person of integrity, which is a much more powerful state of discipline than anything else. Now, when I first proposed that notion, and Merrill Kaufman and I did some experiments that demonstrated that was true, Festinger was not terribly pleased by it because he thought what I was doing was narrowing the scope of the theory. And he and I had a Big discussion about that, but I was convinced, I'm convinced that theories have to change. Paul Meal, the great Paul Meal, one of the great psychologists of my time, once told me, he said, all theories are lies. And And what he meant was, no theory is exact or precise. They all try to tell you what the world is, but they're off a little bit. And there's a point there in the philosophy of science. Well, I think all theories have to evolve a little bit. They can't just stay stagnant. They evolve in the face of data which doesn't quite make sense. The theory makes good predictions, but it's not perfect. So the two things you strive for when you're building a theory, you don't ask whether it's right or wrong. You ask two questions. How clearly does it capture the way the world is? And the other is, how much of the world does it capture? And Prestinger was saying, you're narrowing the theory a little bit. It's not capturing as much as my version does. And I said, yeah, but look at the increased clarity. Hmm. Because there were some aspects of the theory, as you stated it, Leon, where we weren't sure whether two things would be dissonant or not. And hmm. the crucial example that Prestinger gave in his book that got me started was, suppose a guy goes out for a drive on a dark and rainy night. And he's in this, without any traffic, it's late at night, two o'clock in the morning. And suddenly he gets a flat tire and we open the trunk of his car. He doesn't have a jack. Does he experience cognitive dissonance? best thing I said, no, he doesn't, because... Although he might be scared, he might feel worried, concerned, poking wet in the rain. But there's no, where's the cognitive dissonance? And I remember arguing with him when I was his student saying, what do you mean where's the cognitive dissonance? What kind of an asshole would go out on a rainy night without a jack in his car? Go, would go driving on a lonely country road? And he says, yeah, but where's the dissonance? And then a couple of years later, I realized where the dissonance was. It was his self-concept as a reasonably smart guy, his dissonance with the self-concept that he didn't check the trunk of his car and to say if he had a jack before he went out. And, that, and so he really felt stupid. And there's the dissonance right there with his self-concept. And, that's, and that turned out to be the center of cognitive dissonance theory If you can show that the self-concept is plugged in and what the person does, if the person could take another classic experiment, the one done by Eric Kaufman, if you tell a lie to a person, deceive a person, and you're paid $20 for doing it, you don't believe the lie as much as you do if you're only paid $1 for doing it, because... In the one case, the guy sold his soul, he told a lie, but $20 made it worth it. But, it, but if you only did it for $1, value, you'd say, my God, boy, how dumb I am. I not only tell a lie, but I didn't even get much for it. So you can often figure out where the self-concept is that would be violated. And if there is no self-concept to be violated, then dissonance is very minor. It's just took. Just any two cognitions that are different, less powerful, less painful, less attitude change, less behavior change, etc. You can see a movie. You can show a prejudiced person a movie about prejudice, and they might come out thinking, yeah, those black people, all those Jews, or those Mexican-Americans, they really got a bad deal. That's too bad, and they'll feel lousy about it. There'll be some dissonance in the person with his own, given his own attitude, which might have been a little bit negative toward those groups. But if you put a person in a situation, like, for example, in the jigsaw classroom, where they're working closely with people of different races and different ethnic groups, and they're exchanging ideas, and they're giving things to those people. And receiving things from those people that within a week or two, they're having a huge change in feelings toward the minority group people who are in their group that will soon extend to all of them. And that's where the powerfulness comes in, that we'd like to do it cheaply if we want to change prejudice attitudes by showing them movies and things like that, doesn't have the powerful effect that actually being in a situation like that would have. Working closely, working cooperatively with people in a group that you were once prejudiced against makes it very hard to maintain that prejudice. That's why it's a powerful
0: I think. May I ask if you have to run at 2 p.m. sharp or if we can go a few minutes longer because otherwise we will have to start I to wrap up.
1: I can take it. I, I know I'm talking a lot here. No, so it's I great. Can,
0: That's why I would love to continue a bit more. But I can go till maybe 2 Okay, perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Okay, we will go back into this. Okay. okay. Let's move forward just for a second to the present day and I promise we will come back in time. But to the present day, decades of research have been done on cognitive dissonance, and yet I imagine there must still be open questions. What is some research you would like to see in the coming years and decades in the cognitive dissonance realm? unaddressed questions so far.
1: I don't know. I, I will leave that to the young people. What's happening in the present time, what I've seen in the past 20 years, and certainly in the past, eight or ten years. I think I've I've said to my friends recently, this is the decade of dissonance with Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is a fantastic creator of dissonance among Republicans, among people who want to vote for him because they like some of his policies, some of his policies which really aren't his. He doesn't have any ideas, but he does things that they like. And yet, they have to be aware of his shortcomings as a human being. The cognitive dissonance is enormous. You take a guy like Rusty Bowers, who recently testified in front of the January 6th committee about the the, <laughs> the insurrection. Against the government where the, 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 those thugs marched on the Capitol. Rusty Bowers is a state legislature in the state of, legislator in the state of Arizona. And he Trump, the Trump people asked him to appoint a set of phony electors when they were claiming that the election was stolen and rigged and stuff like that. And he refused to do it because he's an up, an upright guy and said it would, I took an oath. To abide by the Constitution and I won't do it. And they got very angry at him for not doing it, for not lying, for not creating chaos in this country. And they drove trucks by his house with loudspeakers yelling that he was a pedophile. Not a pedophile, he was a very religious guy, a very upright guy. At the time, his daughter had a terminal illness in their home and was dying when these runs are going off saying that her father is a pedophile. He testified in front of the January 6th committee, he told all of this, and afterwards when he was asked if Trump runs in the next presidential election, would you vote for him? And he said yes. Can you believe the cognitive dissonance that guy is experiencing. And I imagine a lot of Republicans are experiencing dissonance that way. This is the decade of dissonance. Now, when I was her students and for 20, 30, 40 years afterwards, cognitive dissonance was a powerful theory in academic psychology, but was not really known by the general world. Now, it's a term that's All the comedians use on late night television. All of the pundits are using it. And sometimes they even get it right. Sometimes they get it confused with conflict or anything like that. But it's become very popular and very meaningful. This is the decade of business. I don't know what the next thing realm of research would be. When I was an active researcher in my 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, I didn't know either. I would just go wherever my curiosity led me. And I I did a lot of things. I discovered new paradigms in dissonance theory, the one I call the hypocrisy paradigm, only because I was interested in applying cognitive dissonance theory in an attempt to get sexually active people to use condoms. During the time when AIDS was powerful event in the lives of millions of people. And there was no cure for it. And it was really scary. And yet we knew that if people wore condoms, they could prevent AIDS. They could still have sex and prevent AIDS. But they weren't using condoms. Only 17% of sexually active people in 1985 were using condoms. And so I wanted to use cognitive dissonance as a way of convincing people to use condom. And in doing it, I had to, quite by accident, invented a whole new paradigm where we had people preach using condoms, make a videotape. And they believed that condom use was a good thing, but they just weren't doing it themselves because they found it inconvenient or it reduced their pleasure or whatever. But once they made that speech, recorded tape, videotaped the speech to be used for high school, in high school student classes on sex education. And then we interviewed them after they made that video and asked them, How frequently they use condoms and what can, what are the conditions in which they find it difficult to use condoms and all of that make forcing them to think about their own hypocrisy. The fact that they're preaching using condoms, but not practicing using condoms. And we found that increased their use of condoms enormously. And, but I developed that new paradigm. Not because I sat down one day and said, gee, I think I want a new paradigm for dissonance theory, but because I was solving some difficult problem to solve and stumbled into that new paradigm because that was the only way I could see about solving that problem. And that's the way science progresses. Some old guy, 90 years old, 91 years old, sitting in front of you saying. Oh, here's where I think the theory should go. That's bullshit. The theory goes where people want to take it. And the people. The theory goes where people actively thinking about solving problems, whether it's problems that exist in society or problems that exist in their mind when they're thinking about how the human mind works, which is, of course, the only thing that Leon Festinger was interested in. He couldn't have cared less about condoms or anything else He just wanted to know how the human mind works, which is fine. For me, because partly because of my exposure to Abraham Maslow, Maslow taught me that psychology should be used to improve the human condition. And that's what my initial interest in going to graduate school was about. When I started to work with Leon, i got so excited about the ideas and about the research that i forgot about improving the human condition i really wanted to i wanted to test hypotheses in the laboratory that would help me understand how the human mind worked and then it was seven or eight or 10 years later that i thought hey wait a minute i want to do something for society also and that And partly by accident, and partly on purpose, I drifted into things like the jigsaw classroom, like the condom research, like inducing people to take shorter showers on college campuses because of the environmental concerns, because of global warming, because of all of that stuff. Trying to do things that were theoretically interesting from the point of view of increasing our knowledge of how the human mind works and also useful to society. There's no disparity. There's no disconnect. There's no reason why we can't do both of those things simultaneously in the same experiment. And that's how my work progressed. But it wasn't because I had some grand scheme of how I was gonna do it. It was because in the process of following my nose and following my heart and combining the two, I could find a way that produced research that I think was important.
0: And I think the field and humanity at large is very happy that you took that route (laughs) and tried to focus on actual problems in the world. And of course, we have to talk briefly about the Jigsaw classroom and it underlies a certain psychology, not just in the classroom, but a psychology of cooperation that can be taken beyond. And there is a quote attributed to you saying, The American mind in particular has been trained to equate success with victory, to equate doing well with beating someone, right? There's a certain sense of competitiveness, and we might even take it back to Festinger, right? To be really competitive and nasty to your students. It's going to bring out their best, but maybe, as you would suggest reality looks a little different. I don't want to give
1: Bustinger that kind of a bad rap. He wasn't interested in competing. He was interested in performing as well as possible and not working with anyone who was lazy and who didn't work hard at what they were doing. And in addition to being a very difficult person, he was also a very warm and caring person. So he had a lot of these qualities. I I loved the man. I really learned to love him. But it was mostly because I'm really grateful for this, that I was able to stand up to him, able to put up with him. And finally, we became close friends because his impatience didn't bother me, but it, and his warmth and love attracted me as a human being. But the jigsaw classroom, it, yeah, I think the American way is competitive, and I think it's led to some really good things. But it's also led to some deficits and people are forever, certainly in elementary school and junior high school and high school and college, forever trying to find someone that they can feel superior to. And a lot of this prejudice, a lot of this white supremacy that's going on in this country right now is that people who are unhappy, especially. Want to find somebody that they can feel superior to. Want to find somebody that they can feel like they're, doing. I may not be making much money. I may be uneducated, but I'm sure better off than that guy. And that's a, a, a destructive kind of attitude. And what we did in the jigsaw classroom in developing it, again, that was another lucky break. I was, I was at that time, I was teaching at the University of Texas in Austin, Texas. When the Austin public schools were desegregated in 1971. And so, black kids and white kids and Mexican American kids were brought together in the same classroom for the first time since the Civil War. It was an incredible thing. And as social psychologists, many of us believed at that at, when in 1954, when the Supreme Court decided that the notion that was the law of the land at the time was that it was okay to separate races. Segregation was okay in schools as long as the facilities were the same, as long as equal, or equivalent. So that it was okay to have a school that was all black and all, another school that was all Mexican-American and another school that was all white as long as they had equal facilities. But what the Supreme Court in 1954 decided, in a magnificent case in which social psychology played a role, is that the mere act of separating kids by race or ethnicity makes the kids in the minority group feel that they're not as good or as worthy as the kids in the majority group, because they're not, a black kid is not going to think, oh, they're segregating me because I'm so much better than these white people. No, (laughs) segregating me because the society at large thinks I'm not good enough. And that in and of itself makes it unequal psychologically. So you can never have separate but equal. You have built in feelings of inequality, which makes the whole notion of segregation a lie. And that got overturned. So 17 years later, it took that long, Austin schools were finally desegregated, and all hell broke loose. We thought desegregation would be a good thing. Social psychologists believe that once the sense prejudice is largely a matter of ignorance, if you bring people together, Contact, equal people in the same classroom in contact with each other, they're going to learn to appreciate each other. Not so. When we observed the classroom, let's so, just to continue with the story, I had a former student who was now assistant superintendent of schools in the Austin school system. And when they desegregated and all these fistfights were breaking out, cross-racial lines, black kids against white kids against Mexican-American kids, bullying of all kinds, they really have to shut down many of the schools because of that. So this guy called me up and he says, hey, can you do something about this? Do you have any ideas? And I agreed to come in and try to do something. But only if we find something out that we think works, you give me carte blanche use it in as many classrooms as I see fit. And because the schools were in crisis, with kids being at each other's throats, he agreed to that. Yeah. And and that's what allowed for the TikTok classroom. And we, I didn't have any great ideas going in, but the first thing we did, my graduate students and I, is we observed several elementary school classrooms. And I sent them out in pairs, each looking at a different classroom, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. And I asked them to observe carefully and to write down the things they see and to rank order them in terms of frequency and power and stuff like that. And they, every pair came up with the same thing at the top of their list. The classroom is a very competitive place where kids are vying against each other for the teacher's respect and affection. Because especially in elementary school, the teacher is the second most important person in most kids' lives, second only to their mother. It's like the teacher is really important, and they want the teacher to respect and like them. So the teacher stands in front of the classroom, asks the question, And immediately, six or seven hands go up. And they're straining. They're lifting their asses out of their chairs to try to get her attention. It's a very powerful, competitive look to it. And the teacher calls on one kid. And when she calls on one kid, you can hear a groan go up from the other five or six kids that had their hands up because they missed the chance to show the teacher how smart they are. And if the kid comes up with the right answer, they hate the kid that was called on. But what they hate worse is the fact that a lot of the other kids don't even have their hands up. And it turns out that after years of segregation, and the schools were never equal in any way in the poorer sections of town, The teaching wasn't as good. The curriculum wasn't as good. The facilities weren't as good. So they, the kids, the minority kids were not getting a good education. And when they entered, say, the fifth grade in a newly desegregated school, they were one full grade level in reading comprehension, reading comprehension. Behind the white kids, the Mexican-American and African-American kids in the fifth grade were reading at the fourth grade level. Most of the white kids were reading at the sixth grade level. So they were almost two full grades behind. And so we're in a, this highly competitive situation. They were thrust into the situation where they were virtually guaranteed to lose. And after a while, they became sullen and they didn't even try to participate. It was a terrible situation. So what's the solution? It didn't take us long, but after observing these classrooms for a couple of days and all agreeing, I had seven or eight graduate students working with me on this. We all agreed that what we need to do is cut through the competition in some way. And that's that's how we invented the Jigsaw Classroom, which is breaking the groups up into small groups, breaking the class of maybe 30 students into six groups of five, five or six, depending upon the number of kids in the classroom. And then making an assignment. The reason of called Jigsaw is that, let's say the lesson of the day, let's say in social studies, they're studying lives of great Americans. And the lesson of the day is the life of Eleanor Roosevelt. So we would take her biography And if it's a five-person group, we would break it down into five paragraphs. One paragraph would be her childhood and how she grew up. The second paragraph would be meeting Franklin Roosevelt. The third paragraph would be their marriage. And while he was being assistant secretary of the Navy, the next paragraph would be he's elected president, Eleanor Roosevelt in the White House. And the final paragraph would be After Roosevelt's death, Eleanor Roosevelt in the United Nations and all the work she was doing there, et cetera, et cetera. And then each kid had one paragraph. Each kid takes that paragraph, reads it, doesn't have to memorize it, but learns it pretty well, and then meets with one kid from each of the jigsaw groups who has the same paragraph, and they talk about how they're going to present it to the Jigsaw group, really learn it well by discussing it and learn the best way to present it. And then they go back into their original group where each kid has a different paragraph and they go through it, reciting it to each other, asking questions about it, et cetera. And they help each other. Each one really has to now listen hard to the kid who's presenting in order to Understand it and to ask questions if you don't fully understand it. And with this technique, we call it jigsaw because it's like putting together the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle to come out with the life of Eleanor Roosevelt. And the reason that we have kids work with other kids that have the same paragraph is that some kids don't have good reading skills. And by working with four or five kids that have the same paragraph, They're learning how they do it and they're gaining access to that wealth of information. And then they go back into their Jigsaw Group. The Jigsaw Group was arranged on purpose to have boys and girls in it, to have African-Americans, Mexican-Americans, and Anglo kids in it so that you get a lot of diversity in each Jigsaw Group. And what we found was after only six weeks, first of all, the teacher season, within a week or two, the atmosphere in the classroom changes in immensely. Kids are now talking to each other, black kids and white kids are talking to each other. In the schoolyard during recess, they're playing together rather than being in white groups, black groups, Mexican-American groups, really just hanging, hanging out with their own ethnicity, but now total integration, total mingling. And that just took place within four or five weeks. But within six weeks, when we actually collected the data, we found prejudice went down. We found that learning increased tremendously. They learned the material better than a control condition, which consisted of teachers who were it designated as some of the best teachers in the school system, teaching in the traditional way. And the jigsaw was being taught by a random sample of teachers who we designated to be in that condition. So, prejudice was down, learning increased, the self esteem of minority kids improved, and the empathy of kids, the empathic ability of kids improved when we gave them tests of empathy they were much more able to put themselves in the shoes of another person. Why? Because if you're competing in a classroom, the only person you really need to pay attention to is the teacher. And you want to make sure she knows how smart you are. So you don't have to really pay attention to any of the other kids. They're just noise as far as you're concerned. But... In the jigsaw classroom, you damn well better pay attention to each of the other kids, even if it's a kid you think is stupid or a kid you don't like because of his ethnicity or for any reason, you have to pay attention. And in paying attention, you begin to see that kid is a lot smarter, a lot nicer, a lot more articulate than you would have given him credit for, and you begin to like him more you begin to appreciate it more. And this technique works beautifully in every place that we ever use it over the next several years.
0: Wow. There are so many obvious applications of this and so many directions we could take this. So many hours we could keep talking about this alone, but we can't <laughs> because we are up against time. I cannot thank you enough for your time and your nuggets of wisdom throughout this conversation. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure to be with you. I enjoyed it a while.
0: Thank you for listening. Following Robert Cialdini's advice here on this podcast, let's see if I can convince you to take about five seconds of your valuable time and leave us a quick review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or elsewhere. (laughs) This podcast has been a labor of love by several wonderful young folks here in the department, and we have been surprised by the ever-increasing reach the podcast has had. We are near half a million downloads a year and a half since we started, with tens of thousands of new downloads and thousands of new followers every single month in nearly every country around the world. Help us make even more people excited about psychology by leaving us a review or subscribing to our no-spam, all-fun substack at Stanford at stanfordpsychpod to connect with other listeners or shoot us an email with your thoughts or suggestions at Psych podcast at gmail.com. Thank you and have a wonderful psyched